Hi, everyone. <laughs> What's up? Hello. Hi. Are people nervous? Is anyone feeling yes. nervous? <laughs> okay, good. Good. <laughs> so we're all in the same place. Welcome to How To. I'm journalist Carvel Wallace, sitting in for Amanda Ripley. You know, I've given advice in the parenting sphere for years as both a podcast host and columnist for Slate. And while I can't say I've seen it all, by the time I stepped away, I felt like I had come pretty close. But what we're going to talk about today is by far the trickiest, most heart-wrenching thing to navigate as a parent. And just a warning, we are going to briefly discuss suicidal ideation in this episode. Here's this week's listener. My name is Kate. I'm a writer and I'm a mom of two sons who are 19 and 15. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Sam. How would you describe Sam to someone who'd never met him? Oh, gosh. He was the kind of kid that could walk into a park and within an hour come out with a new best friend. Like, he's so likable. He's very bright, outgoing, extroverted, kind. <laughs> Sounds like I'm bragging about him, but he, he is honestly like... You, you can brag. Like, yeah. he's, he's the type of kid that, like, other kids' parents would come to me and say, like, I am so glad that my kid is friends with Sam. Like, he's, like, such a great uh-huh. friend. So I never really thought of him as a candidate for someone suffering from depression. Like so many kids, the pandemic derailed Sam's junior and senior year. So when he began isolating from friends and family and his grades started slipping, Kate and her husband chalked it up to the pandemic. Of course he's in his room all the time. Like everyone's in their room all the time. And so we just kept going, you know, applying to colleges and Somewhere in the summer between high school and when he was supposed to go to college, he just came to a crisis point. Now, looking back, Kate thinks there may have been some red flags that everything wasn't all right. He was being very reluctant to get involved in the college planning process that we were deep in the middle of. Like, Mm. it just felt like pulling teeth. He wasn't excited for his future in the way that I saw him. And he was just, like, removing himself and not talking to us and going Mm. in his room. And there was one night we had set um, a time. We're like, okay, you know, 5 o'clock on this date. Like, let's all sit down and we're finally going to talk about, you know, getting you registered for classes and, like, what are the things that we need to buy? Like, let's start doing some real planning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for this. And so we set a family meeting and he just didn't show up. And it it worried me at the time, but I just thought like, oh, maybe he's one of his friend's house or he just doesn't want to talk about it. He's just avoiding it. Maybe he just went for a, a walk around the block. Um, turns out actually he was just like sitting in the backyard the whole time in a place where we couldn't see him. That night, the one that Sam spent alone hiding in the backyard, that was the night he attempted suicide. So we got him in to see a psychologist as soon as we can, which is 
really difficult, even just finding somebody and someone to see him right away. And she immediately was like, okay, this is serious. This is over my head. Like he's having suicidal ideation. We need to get him into a psychiatrist, to a doctor, get him on medication. They took Sam to the ER rather than wait several weeks for a therapy appointment. He ended up seeing a psychiatrist and started medication, which seemed to help. But you see, looming over them during this crisis was this deadline. They had to decide if Sam was going to leave for college thousands of miles away or stay at home. Ultimately, he made the decision to go. He had to find all new doctors in this new state and... Because he just turned 18, like it felt like it was up to him, like the doctor's office wouldn't even talk to us. It just became this whole process that became very overwhelming. I did not know how to support him from afar. And Mm. about sort of three weeks into his time at college, he just called and said, like, I can't, like, I I need to come home. I can't, I can't do this. He was having Mm. panic attacks, was in over his head, just hated it. So I flew out immediately. Kate brought him home. Sam proceeded to spend the following months in his room still very much struggling with depression. And Kate, Kate spent that time walking on eggshells, uncertain about how to help her son. The core of my question is like, how do you support your child who is not technically a child, like legally they're an adult, which has its own layer of complications. Like where's the line between mm-hmm. overparenting and being supportive, especially when it comes to mental health? Because I, I feel like I'm surrounded by these messages of like, we're overparenting our kids. Like, don't be a helicopter. <laughs> don't be a snowplow. Like, don't yeah. step in. Like yeah. the line is in a different place when it comes to mental health issues, but like, I still don't know where that is. How do you get them through it? I mean, at, at this point he has, like, it It was a journey. Like at this point he is stabilized and he is, um, he actually did this fall start college at a different university, different place, not across the country, but still a plane right away. And actually he, he seems good now, but it's scary trying to figure out, like, how do we know for sure? So today on the show, we're bringing on Dr. Christine Moutier. She's a psychiatrist and the chief medical officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Well, first of all, Kate, thank you so much for speaking about your family's experience and having been in the shoes of a similar situation in my parent role, my heart goes out to you. Christine is going to help us figure out how to parent a kid through a mental health crisis. We'll talk about how to foster a strong relationship with your young adult, how to tell if something is wrong, and how to look after yourself along the way. Stay with us. Let's start with the good news. The rate of suicide for people under the age of 25 is still significantly lower than the rest of the population. But now the bad news. 
from 2009 to 2019, there was a 40% jump in poor mental health and suicidal behaviors among U.S. high school students, according to the CDC. And this was only exacerbated by the pandemic. The American Academy of Pediatrics now believes that mental health is the leading source of impairment for adolescents. Nearly 20% of them in the U.S. experience a major depressive episode. So, I mean, number one, obviously, and I, I hope you know this, Kate, like you are not alone and your family's story is not a singular one. While mental health is a part of health, and we all know that, I think intellectually now more than ever, stigma has gone down so much. And, you know, we're, we're all saying that we're open-minded and ready to address mental health like any other aspect of health. But the reality is until we deepen our mental health literacy very, very actively, the way that it actually unfolds, because it's not just cultural, societal stigma, each person, and as you described your son, especially individuals who see themselves as helpers of others, they keep it all basically under wraps. Mm. We've been socialized to write all of it off, to put it all into the context of the stress of the moment. And that has honestly created life-threatening situations for all of us because we've oh, we've been too willing to accept that there might be a reason for it and therefore there's no action needed. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. And I, I think one of the, it raises like two questions for me, both as a parent and as a person. So like as a parent, it's like, how do you know the difference between my child is deteriorating mentally and my child is a teenager or yes. is throwing, right, is throwing tantrums? Yes. I mean, I, you know, when I think about the tantrums and the, the just the, the just bizarre, wild, terroristic behavior that took place in our house when our kids were little, I'm like, this from the outside looks like a mental health breakdown. Is it one or is it just the person's being a kid? Because an hour later, they're fine, which then kind of made me think of the second question you know, life is hard anyway. It's especially hard now. How do we internally know the difference between I'm um, having a healthy response to the fact that things are so difficult and I'm deteriorating mentally and I need help? Is there a difference between those two things? It's one thing to have like one thing seem a little off, but then it sort of bounces back because all of our mental health can be quite fluid and dynamic in that way. But when it when it starts looking like it's a pattern and you're not sure what you're seeing, and certainly like in the case of your story, Kate, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of previous experience to say, you're on the lookout. You're going to be like, the minute I start mm -hmm. seeing these things, I'm going to get with his pediatrician, his teachers, his coaches, his music teacher, and like parents who have a lot of experience with especially more chronic or intermittent mental health problems in their children ideally develop a team and your team these adults in your kid's life they are they are your lifeblood because they care for your kid they also have their own view of you know whether there's a real change in their pattern of behavior going on here's our first insight parenting really should be a communal undertaking not only is it good for your kid to interact and bond with adults who aren't always figures of authority in their lives, but it's also highly beneficial for you, the parent. Cultivate those relationships and keep up with them, even as your kid gains independence. They're the ones you're going to need if you start to notice that your teen is struggling with their mental health. We all have the picture of like the moody teenager and we're all prepared like, okay, when they go into adolescence and all the hormones, like they're going to be moody and you just need to write it out like... 
it's it's hard to know the difference between what's moody adolescence and what's like a serious issue. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. And and it's also a time developmentally when your kid's job, their developmental milestone is to begin to separate from their family of origin right. and kind of establish who they are, their own identity, which does mean pushing you away right at a time when you're really needing to actually have some pretty open conversations in order to hear their perspectives and to really be able to fully explore. The way it usually goes is they're not going to talk when you invite it, but when you least expect it, oftentimes when you're in a parallel position together, like in the car and you're not looking at each other Mm -hmm. or you're watching a show and the commercial comes on and now all of a sudden they're talking about a situation in their life, you might even miss, like, this is them opening up and giving me a window into their perspective on their friend group or the stressful situation they're going through. Yeah, well, that also makes me wonder, and this kind of gets into something that Kate said earlier about trying to find care. I wonder how much of our inability to sort of acknowledge that deterioration is happening or that help is needed is related to the fact that, okay, like, what do we do then? Like, (laughs) let's say that I am deteriorating mentally or, like, my kid is, what am I going to do? Like, I wonder if parents feel overwhelmed by, like, as a collective sort of culture, we don't have a lot of, as you said, literacy around, is talking about it enough? Does everyone need to go to a psychiatrist or therapist? So I wonder if you can help us kind of understand, like, let's say that we have accepted that our child is struggling. Literally, what are we looking to mm-hmm. do? Yeah. And no, I think that probably is a barrier, conscious or unconscious, for many to kind of like, do I even open up sort of Pandora's box? And none of us are necessarily practiced at this when it comes to mental health, but we are practiced at it as parents for any other health issue. We rely on our pediatrician as a starting point, and the same thing holds true for mental health changes or deterioration. So if you're without a strong network of, you know, already knowing who the mental health professionals are, who come highly recommended or who are covered by your insurance plan, you can always start with your child's primary care provider. It's interesting you say that because after when he had his initial crisis and we took him to the psychologist who, you know, said like, okay, this is serious. The pediatrician was the next person we Mm -hmm. called. And they basically said, no, you need to go to a psychiatrist. Like, Mm. this is not, we can't treat him for mental health issues. You need to find a psychiatrist. And it's hard, like, to find somebody. Like, once he came back living at home, I mean, we went down, just down the list of therapists that were covered by insurance. Like, he tried three different people, and it just wasn't clicking. And he was getting to a point where he was like, therapy is never going to help. And we eventually ended up, you know, having to pay out of pocket for someone who was like personally recommended that we knew who was good. Like, can we just acknowledge like the the health system is broken when it comes to mental health? It's so much easier just to find like a primary care doctor than to find a psychiatrist or a therapist. Like it's really difficult. For sure. Yes, for sure. Just in my own experience, having to find mental health uh, support for my children, how difficult it was. And that was given our relative privilege. We're insured. People have jobs. People can afford to pay out of pocket if it really comes to that. Even with all those resources to bear, still we're we're waiting six weeks, nine weeks, 12 Mm -hmm. weeks, three months for an appointment. And those appointments are quick. The person is booked up from here to eternity. So I guess that raises the question for me, not like how do we fix the healthcare system? Because 
that's an entirely different <laughs> podcast. But um, my question really for Dr. Moutier is a little bit about what kind of environment do we create for our children that supports mental health, not only in crisis, but just kind of as a general concept. Yes. Okay. So routines, predictability, security, those kind of basic fundamental things matter a lot. And so even just having a plan, what each person is doing, what the family's doing for the week during the pandemic, I thought it was really important to think about as parents, how our own mental well-being is going because it's so contagious if we are just leaking a level of of anxiety and stress um, and agitation ourselves. So really actually trying to get very proactive about our own sleep, our own well-being as much as possible. And then planning in some things that are just for like family bonding, lighthearted things, whatever the family likes to do, board games or movie night, um, you know, baking together, whatever it is, like actually being somewhat intentional about that. The other thing you can do is just really normalize talking about mental health. Christine's organization has some wonderful guides for how to do this, but here's the gist. Number one, you can always open up the conversation by casually bringing up your own experiences with mental health struggles. That can be a good way to signal that you're open to talking about this. And like I have to say, I did this myself. I remember just telling my son about how I was depressed in college and... I just kind of would bring it up for a while. And eventually, after a few weeks, he started telling me about his own feelings of discomfort and depression in high school. And um, I feel like that worked. Also, if you want to discuss a specific concern, start with an expression of care, followed by an observation. During the conversation, you can reassure your child that you care and you love them and it's okay to talk about. Then you can end the conversation by reiterating that you're glad to have connected and that you'll be there for the future. Remember that the main goal here is to open up a line of communication, not to fix things, which is a departure from the culture that a lot of us grew up in. Even in my home environment, if you know, my brother or I were crying, feeling angry, any negative emotions, we would be sent to our room. So it's like, come out Mm. when you have a happy face and you're ready to participate in the family environment. I, too, grew up in an environment where it was sort of like, fix your face, what, you, know, you know what I mean? You mm-hmm. sort of get over it. And not only did I learn to do that because that was what was a good currency for me in my social environment, I also took pride in my ability to do mm-hmm. that. Like, I was someone that could have terrible things happen and could just, like, the next day pop up, be ready to go, put that in the past. So when later in my life it was suggested to me that maybe that's not the move, That took me a few years to wrap my head around because I'm like, but that's how I survived. So what are you telling me? Like, I survived incorrectly? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But it does make me wonder, Kate, when you think about Sam growing up, do you feel like he had potential and space to express complicated, large, maybe even unpleasant feelings? That's a good question. I mean, I'd like to... Feel like we definitely, you know, gave gave him that space and gave him that independence and ability. But like, I can't think of examples when he ever really did, mm. you know. And I and I don't know if that was parenting or in the environment or his personality. Something that 
has tied in my mind to, to that period of time with my son's crisis is it coincided with an extremely busy time with me at work. Like his first crisis happened like right after, like I'd just been out of town and it's just been incredibly busy for a couple of weeks. And then the second one, again, when he was off at college, again happened and at, at a time right after I'd just been out of town. And in my mind, I tied those things together of like causality that may or may not have been there. It's like the parental guilt (laughs) that is hard to avoid. Well, it's interesting because this question of causality and guilt, parental guilt, it's like, I think we have to be super careful with that. When I look back on my own children who are now 17 and 19, one is out of the house, one is almost out. I feel like that's what I didn't do well enough when my career got really busy. Um, I also didn't have time, so I was kind of rushing through everything. Dad, I need help with it. Okay, but hurry up because I have to get on this call. Hurry up, I have a deadline. I think that it wasn't that I needed to work less. It was that it didn't quite occur to me how I needed to adjust the way I parented as a result of this change in my energy in relationship to them. And Kate, I also want to hear more, you know, a little bit about like, I know that Sam is doing better now, Mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit about how you navigated it yourself. How did you deal with your own personal feelings of fear, anxiety, stress, self-doubt when things were very difficult for Sam? It's an ongoing thing, right? Especially Mm. since he's out of the house and in a different state. And how do I put myself in a position where I'm supportive, but not worrying? Like, how do I check in on him without being like, how are you feeling? (laughs) You know, you don't want to be like that. Like when Mm -hmm. I talk to him and, and he's telling me, I can see like things that he's excited about, like, oh, I love this class or, you know, oh, I did this thing with my friends. Like that I can see is genuine. And I worry that the Bad days are the silence. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear how Christine dealt with this balance of being supportive, but not constantly fretting when her son had a similar mental health crisis while in college. Don't go anywhere. We're back with our listener, Kate, and Dr. Christine Moutier, the chief medical officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Christine, you mentioned that your son had a severe mental health crisis, and I'm curious about how you dealt with that as a parent, not as a professional. Mm -hmm. In a way, similarly, our son needed to take a leave of absence from college, come back home, and did engage in treatment and I, I just was utterly humbled at being a professional in the national arena around mental health and suicide prevention. And with all of the knowledge I have at, at that level, um, clinically, scientifically, advocacy, walking the walk in our home, in our family, even the relationship between myself and my husband, mm-hmm. it was 
fraught with friction and tension, with disagreement about what we should be doing and saying and expecting of our son, you know, at each stage along the way. So, you know, I will just say it's an exercise in staying with it, in communication, trying to create that open space where they can speak when they're ready to speak about some of the deep things going on inside. That That's an incredible thing when they start to do that. And you have to treat it as they are taking a risk by opening up, especially to their parents. So actually it goes for anyone. When they open up to you and tell you the distress they're going through or suicidal thoughts, you thank them for trusting you first and foremost. Mm. You tell them you're gonna be there for them and there to listen. We love you unconditionally. And no matter what challenges you go through, together our family will get through this. We will support you through it. I mean, those are the obvious things, but sometimes it helps to just speak them out loud to ground you in like the big picture of what could that look like. And I think the person who's suffering, remember, their brain is not well. So it's playing tricks on them. There's, they're thinking they're being judged. They're being, so you, so you actually need to say those obvious statements of unconditional love and support. Hmm. I really appreciate you telling that story, especially talking about like when your child's mental health crisis just prevents them from being able to do functional things. Cause I, I think as a parent, like it was hard for me to that instinct to like, I can solve this by like setting rules and making him do these things that I know that are going to improve his mental health and seeing like, he can't do those things right now. He can't function as an adult I know. In, the, in the world. And so it's hard to take the reins back and be like, okay, I just need to allow him for, you know, however many months just to be a, a non-functional person who's trying to find his way back. Well, the thing I also recognize from the, just our own experiences as parents is that there's so much anxiety because you want a solution. And you're yes. like, well, if he just needs to go, he just needs to get out of it and go get a job and get a driver's license and it'll, it'll, you know, he has to fake it till he makes it. And you're, you're, you want that to be the solution. Or you're like, no, we, he just needs to have as much space as possible and he needs to be loved and we need to bring him pudding every morning. And, <laughs> and like, I want that to be the solution. But I think underneath that is this like intense parental urge to, to get out of this state of the unknown. We yeah. don't know if he's okay. We don't know if he's healthy. We don't know how this is going to turn out. We got to get the hell out of here. So someone's got to come up with a plan to get us out of here. And I think that creates a lot of difficulty. And I wonder, um, Christine, like, what is your advice to parents who are sitting with the unknown yeah. of, is our kid okay? Is this getting better? Is this getting worse? What is your advice I, to parents it, in oh, that situation? Gosh, it, yeah, like I said, and having experienced it myself, and even with all the knowledge I have, the, the anxiety is excruciating. So sometimes parents, I think, will and appropriately need to ask for some agreement on whether it is that they're engaging in therapy, that you don't need to know what's going on in the therapy necessarily, but to have the reassurance that if you're going to be away at school, you know, what's happening with your treatment, which could be medications, it could be therapy. And again, not to get into the weeds and be intrusive, but some level of reassurance that it's going and that you'll know mm -hmm. if things are starting to take a turn for the worse. Some parents get yeah. really creative, like a daily Snapchat. It can just be like a, the, the picture of their ceiling, <laughs> but that's their way of connecting in the morning, you know, and doing something on, on some regular basis. Or we, or we should figure yeah. it out. 
It is complicated is the bottom line, but I think don't give up either. Remember, these are health issues. So if this were any other kind of health issue, what would you do? You would network, you would right. learn, you would you know, connect, you'd talk to any experts you can get your hands on to kind of lead um, from one thing to the next. Yeah, it took me a long time to talk to friends about it, to even mention it. And once I finally did, I discovered that like two close friends of mine had been dealing with sort of similar issues with their kids around the same age. And I had no Isn't idea. something? Because no one the was talking about it. The culture of silence, yeah. the cone of shame. Yeah, it's just, we got we to exactly. get rid of that. That's so good that you did open up. One thing that came to mind that you were talking about a while ago was about talking to your kids, their support system, like their teachers or the other adults in their life or even their peers. And honestly, that that's something that never even occurred to me as something that I would or could or should do. Where is that helpful and where is that like like betraying your kids' confidence? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you you use it sparingly and only when needed stigmas looming large there and once you do it just like you did with your friends but of course you you pick selectively you you choose the individuals who you know that they are already capable of handling deeper conversations about life family health mental health feelings um, and those adults in your child's life believe me they are involved in so many youth's lives in these ways and and if you're not tapping into them as a resource, you're just not realizing that they have no stigma about it. Now, again, there might be circumstances where you really would want to be careful. You would never want it to come back to your kid in a way that seemed like a betrayal. So oftentimes they know when we're talking to their coach, their teachers, their psychiatrists, because when we get invited into the psychiatrist's office with our kid, that's part of the conversation is like what's going on in the, the bigger picture and what are other people noticing? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And just to go back to this thing about like, I think a lot of it has to do with the belief as a parent that if my kid has mental health issues, it's clearly my fault. That I'm the one who gave the kid these issues. If I was more this way or less that way, then this wouldn't be happening. And I just think that that's maybe like a kind of generalized cultural misunderstanding that we have of the way mental health appears and shows up in kids. And in other words, if my kids fell off the monkey bar, that's not necessarily my fault. Although it made a van, <laughs> no one no one looks at it that way. Everyone says, oh, well, it happens. Kids right. fall. They break things. But I think that um, when I even think about the way we had to navigate our own children's mental health stuff or even just question if it's mental health stuff for just kids being kids. Yeah, there was a fear that like someone's going to be like, well, yeah, look at look at look at how you are. Look at the way there is you gallivanting around the world, being on podcasts. That's why your kid is upset. You're never around. You know, you just always are trying to blame yourself for something. So I don't know. I, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, um, Christine, to help us reframe this. Uh, from its kind of state of stigma to something that we can talk about openly because it really does create a public health crisis of all types, our inability to Yeah, and the, your kids will take the lead from you. If you really get squarely in the space of this is a health issue, there should be no stigma around it. So even... Our kids who, you know, were raised in this stigma-free, we talk about emotions, we address mental health like any other aspect of health, they will still instinctually hide it because when you're suffering, again, 
you're just not feeling well. You withdraw, you go into a self-protective kind of embarrassed place. And remember, cognitive distortions, and we do it all the time in just our normal, mm-hmm. healthy brain. But when, we're, when the brain is sick, we, it, it's happening in a really extreme way. If you could go back and talk to the earlier version of yourself, the Kate from the really bad nights in 2021 when your son was at his lowest point, what advice would Kate now have for Kate then? Well, number one, I think I think I would just want to reassure myself, like, it's going to be okay. Like, you'll get mm. through it. Number two, maybe, like, to be more proactive, to not shy away from it, to, like, take things seriously and not be afraid of getting more involved and just and not being afraid of just talking about it like really directly because I think even now I'm a little like Mm. it's I don't know if it's like fear or stigma but it's just like you just want to not like address the elephant in the room (laughs) and sometimes Mm. you just do need to talk about the elephant in the room Mm. and then Christine also I I would wonder for you if you could go back and speak to yourself as a parent, the moments when your son was at his lowest, what advice would you have for yourself now with some perspective? Well, I think I would tell myself to, you know, take a breath and calm down and develop a little more patience around mm. the healing process takes time. And, you know, I also wish that we had just realized that, like your story, Kate, our son, we were dragging him on college visits. I mean, the fact that we felt such pressure to kind of conform to what everyone expects families and kids to do when they graduate high school, I wish we had just bagged it all and followed our own instincts. And he, he probably needed some time before he went to college, whatever that might look like. Um, and, and that, of course, is the hard part, is what do you do then if you don't do the structured, expected things? It's not right. It's not easy. Yeah, 100%. That's another thing I would definitely tell myself back then is, like, I think he just needs a year off. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been mm-hmm. really stressful, and we don't need to, like, there's no reason to keep pushing him on this timeline. There's no reason why he has to go to college, like, this year. Yeah. He just, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't ready. Well, I know there's so much more that we could talk <laughs> um, about with this, but I want to just first offer like a really sincere thanks to you, Kate, for coming uh, onto our show and talking about this. Um, it really means so much to me, and I think it means so much to so many parents out there to have been able to hear this conversation and hear your story. So I really appreciate it. And Dr. Moutier, the same thing. I really loved hearing you speak about your experiences, and I really just want to thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you so much for having the conversation and, and for your platform. It's it's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Love how you're yeah, using it. Yeah, I appreciate it. it. Like, thank, thank you, you so much for talking about like because I just feel like I needed to ask somebody this question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kate and Sam for sharing their story with us and to Dr. Christine Moutier for all of her useful advice. Please check out the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It has so many good guides and resources. And by the way, we got an update from Kate. Hey, how to? Um, just wanted to give you an update. Um, spoke with my son by a video call. Um, had a 
great conversation, talked for almost two hours, um, all of us, me, my husband, and um, my younger son as well. And it was just really great to see like the confidence and the joy like on his face and in his voice and hear about all the things he's doing and the classes he likes and maybe a little bit about the classes he doesn't like. And it just really reassured me that he's, I don't want to say back to his old self because, you know, he's maturing. He's a, he's a different person, you know, he's growing older. But um, he just seems like in a really good place. And I think that we're able to talk about all kinds of stuff and it just helps me feel confident that when I don't hear from him, you know, when I, when I don't get regular texts, it, you know, it's not because something is wrong. It is because he's busy and he's living his life and he's at college and to be able to hear about all those things and see his face was, was great. That is so nice. And on that note, if you or anyone you know are in crisis, you can now call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anytime, day or night. Just pick up your phone and dial 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. Do you have a problem that needs solving? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. That's 646-495-4001, and we might have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend because that helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is the senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. And I'm Carva Wallace. Thanks for listening. <laughs>